hello. Um, hello. Today I'm here with Azim Sharif. He's a associate professor at the University of British Columbia. He's focused on social and moral psychology. Uh, he has done a lot of work on the psychology of religion, how that relates to morality. And also more recently, he also has been focusing a lot on the ethics of self-driving cars, the ethical problems that arises, how people react to it, how people think about those problems. And he has a lot of uh, interesting work. I think this will be a very fun conversation. Uh, so Azim, thank you very much uh, for coming. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So um, I first heard about you uh, when I saw the interview of, I'm not sure if I can pronounce the name correctly, Translimial, something like that. Can you help me here? That's right. It's Transliminal. It's the production company of Jordan Levine, who who was the producer for the uh, online course that I did on the science of religion. So he's got a side project where he just interviews people. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a great channel, by the way, which I highly recommend everyone going. I, I think I've watched most of the interviews he has done and, and they're, they're both superb in terms of, of quality and also the content and the conversations. It's, it's really good. Uh, so first of all, maybe a good place to start is how, how did you get into all this? What made you interested in uh, psychology of religion or, or more psychology in general? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, uh, I've always been interested in psychology. Um, as an undergrad, I got particularly interested in morality and evolution, um, and in particular the evolution of morality. Um, that's what I applied to work on for graduate school. I ended up here at UBC for my graduate school career, which, where I've now returned as a faculty member. Um, and when I started here, I was working with uh, Ara Noren Zion, um, now colleague, former advisor. And uh, his interest was in religion. And um, so he suggested that we combine our interests, uh, me being interested in evolution of morality, him being interested in religion and the evolution of religion. And so we then looked at that, started looking at that intersection between religion and morality, um, which is what defined my career for the next 10 years after that. Um, and since then, I've expanded beyond religion to broadly speaking morality, but with a specific focus on, on what I call applied moral psychology, which is applying the rich theories that we've developed in moral psychology to applied issues, real world problems. Right. Um, okay. So just so people understand uh, where you're coming from and, and what the type of work that you do, uh, maybe you could touch on what exactly is the relationship between morality and religion? Like, why are they connected at all? Um, and also maybe you could cover a bit on the, because that, that will give us some ground later of the philosophical roots of the field. So, so when, so has civilization started to get more secularized, you know, there, there, there was people that kind of started thinking about more deeply about the connection between yeah. morality and religion, uh, people like Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, maybe Kierkegaard to a degree. Uh, and, and, it's psychology of religion still to this day is trying to answer a lot of the questions uh, they posed. So maybe we can give like a very brief overview. You don't have to go very in depth. Right. So I, from an evolutionary perspective, morality exists in order to regulate social relationships, right? If there's just, if we're, if we're just atomized individuals that don't interact at all, there's no need for a morality. Morality exists in order to allow us to interact together. And our argument is that religion evolved for the same purpose. Uh, it culturally emerged because it was a way of, of allowing people to interact together in, in fruitful ways. 
Um, and so the reason that it has morality at its core, uh, which it does, is because those religions, those, culture, those, those cultural packages that emerged, which most fruitfully allowed us to interact together, were the ones that now exist throughout the world. Um, so the ones that had these moral regulations for you follow this, encouraging us to do that, encouraging us to do the things which would lead large groups of people to successfully cooperate together, those are the ones that ultimately survived and thrived. Um, the, the main philosopher, if you can call him that, to, um, uh, uh, be, behind that idea would be uh, Emil Durkheim, who took the perspective that religion serves this social function, this socially effort, effervescent function, getting us to uh, engage together. Uh, so Durkheim, social regulation, right? So religion serves to, to, to smooth out these social relations. I'll stop there. Cool. Um, okay, so when we think of uh, religion, uh, we usually think of uh, gods. That seems like <laughs> the main topic that it's surrounded, uh, even though it's a lot more um, complex than that. But everything centers around that idea. And it's a very specific type of God, like the Abrahamic God that we're used to from Islam, Christianity, and so forth. Uh, but that's not the only type of, of God there is, and, and it's a relatively new invention, we can call it. And so, and it seems that that idea has uh, sprouted out of when we kind of left our tribal environment of like 150, 200 people, something like that. And now we had to have social interactions with strangers, and then we have the problem of cooperation of free riding and so the theory goes that uh we now invented a god that is all-powerful kind of all-benevolent even though there's some parts to it that aren't but you know the, the typical god that we're used to arose out of the need of having a supernatural being that can control people's behavior because now there isn't the the trust uh, confidence reputation factor that that we used to have um but my question is how does the fields deal with the problem of how do you conceptualize these changes in society and these um, evolutions of religion as if they are products of, of evolution in the sense of like um, um, just, just like variation of ideas and some are more useful than others versus, uh, for example, for example, I could argue that it's not that that environment produced the needs for an idea that then fitted that environment of the ultimate gods, but rather that those interactions kind of made it more salient on the, like, I didn't want to get a bit mystical here because this is more science related, but like it kind of arose the problems of social interactions on like the level of the uh, collective unconscious. And then that's represented or abstracted has that, has that gods. And, and the outcome is kind of the same, but to me, the origin is, is very different, like, like to the point that if one is true, the other one is wrong. Maybe, there, maybe it's not that binary, but, but there's definitely a tension there. So, so how do you view um, the, these, two, these two approaches to viewing mm -hmm. this idea emerging? So, so certainly, I, th I feel like the problem of, of over-determination uh, uh, looms large in these discussions, right? If you have one sufficient explanation, it leaves little room for another sufficient explanation. Um, what I'm less clear on is what your alternative explanation here is, that 
that the, the growth of groups led to, uh, I'm trying to be more specific on my belief. So okay, so, so let me, let me try to argue a bit more, more, more specifically than maybe I was, I was too broad. Um, so on one hand, you have the view that the idea of uh, monotheistic gods arose out of a quasi random process of ideas that tend to fit that environment. But on the other hand, it was more an, in, it's not quite intentional, but let's go with that. Um, arose out of the individual that that was the right thing to do. So that even though there isn't, um, even though there isn't uh, a formal uh, group that controls uh, mm-hmm. behavior to make sure that, that people act in, in the interest of the group, there's kind of a, there's kind of a sentiment that even though, it, even though it's not for my own benefit, it's for the benefit of the group, uh, that gets kind of projected into a sacred ideal of a divine being, especially even more because divine beings is already existent. So they, they kind of, they, they very easily mesh those two together, uh, those two ideas together. And so, but they're not the same thing. Like, so one is more individual, even though it's not like a single individual, but like it's more philosophical in nature. That, that's kind of what I'm trying to argue versus just a, a cultural Darwinian uh, selection sure. process um, for the people watching on YouTube and they suddenly notice a bit of a shift in clothing or environment. That's because uh, we had a bit of a problem and had a power surge. There was a storm here, so we had to reschedule it for another another day, and that was the reason. Um, okay, so well, well, you're right that we were having maybe a bit of a struggle uh, in, in maybe me communicating uh, exactly what I meant about the two options rather two views of, of viewing the emergence of like monotheism and um, the more typical Abrahamic God. And so wh- what I was trying to argue is that uh, one view is more uh, top uh, bottom in the sense that it's just random variation. Some that just happen to be more functional and the other is more uh, intentional and more with, with purpose and more philosophical in the sense that the fact that you have to grapple with these new social problems, it's kind of, it kind of makes you more socially and morally aware of the moral problems that you have to contend with. And then that is reflected upon the mythology that you have. And so uh, I, want, I want to contrast these two. And from what I understood, you're trying to, you're tr- going to try to argue that they're actually not mutually exclusive. I see. Okay. That, that does clarify things. So what I, what I thought you were saying was, yeah, I mean, the, what I think has been innovative in the last 20 years about uh, the evolutionary studies of religion has been that it's combined what had previously existed, which was a cognitive science of religion, which demonstrated how religious ideas uh, come naturally to the human mind with then this cultural selection standpoint, right? So you have the soil being fertile for these ideas, and then you have a selection mechanism which, which shows that over hundreds, thousands of years, certain ideas, all of which could fit easily with the human mind, but certain ideas get selected for because of social benefits in addition to their, um, the, the sort of individual lock and key that fits with the human mind. So that's where I thought you were going, which is why I didn't see those as mutually incompatible. What, what now I recognize you're suggesting is, is this idea that, well, maybe there was some intention uh, behind the shift from uh, 
multiple small gods to a big god. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, uh, uh, I would say I would say even more general, not not just uh, like the, the the collapse of of multiple gods, uh, but like the moralistic god that we now know. So yeah, uh, that's it's interesting. I guess it's a historical question. Um, I would suggest that even if that was the case, there's still a selection, uh, a cultural evolutionary selection mechanism in terms of which types of gods ended up thriving, which religions that had attached themselves to certain gods ended up thriving. So the actual details on how uh, a moralistic god emerged within, say, early Judaism when it made a transition um, uh, is, and whether there were certain, certain people who uh, were a, sort of intentional architects of that shift, I, I don't know. Um, I, I do doubt it. It, it come, you know, we're, we're talking about some details of what happened 5,000 years ago. So I'm not exactly sure. It, it might be the case, but even if it is the case, once those ideas were out there, they had to be pressed through this, this sieve of a, a cultural selection uh, in order to, to end up being the ones that, that thrived or being attached to societies that thrived. Right. Uh, and this is not specific to, to, to your field per se, but now it just popped into my mind. Uh, how, and how do you exactly deal with the problem of figuring out what's, what's adaptive exactly? Because the issue is in evolution terms, that, that's very easy because there's just such a massive span of time and they, they either die or not. Like it's more clear, for, more, uh, um, more straightforward. Uh, but in the sense of ideas, I think, like I, I totally get, what you're arguing and and I agree for sure but now it got me thinking how exactly would you prove or at least argue that something is adaptive or not because you can certainly see two societies when where one seems more functional than another uh, but you can also very especially now uh, you can easily like imagine or look at societies that are dysfunctional you can even call them utopian but uh but they progress nevertheless, like their, their, their genes, we can call it. They, they, they continue to propagate and they're functional in the sense that they continue to persist, but you can very easily argue that they're not as functional as they could be. And so, and this ties in an idea of, which I want to explore more in depth later, but, but just so that this is clarified more, kind of like the Dawkins sense of like a, a mind virus. So something that sticks, but it's not like it's because it's so, uh, functional, it just yeah. it just sticks around. So, how do you battle with with this adapting problem? Yeah, so that's it, it's an absolutely critical point that you know we don't want to fall into a, a cultural version of of a sort of panglossian pan adaptationism that everything that exists culturally is adaptive because it's certainly not the case. Things can be that can cult culturally linger, which are well past their you know, uh, a best buy date, right? The things that used to be adaptive, but now, now become no longer adaptive. Um, and in fact, you can consider that sort of one of the fundamental arguments between a progressive approach and a conservative approach, right? Conservatives are making the case that there's wisdom in traditional institutions. Uh, and progressives are making the case that maybe there was, sometimes they don't even make that case, but maybe there was, but the environment's changed and it's no longer uh, ideal, uh, let alone adaptive. Um, I think that it's the same, the same challenge actually in a study of genetic adaptations, which is unless you have the specific 
uh, genetic evidence. We're talking about a detective story where you're trying to build uh, an argument based on as much evidence as you can muster. And then you have other people take a critical approach to it. The fact that you have, like you said, a limited amount of time in which we're talking about cultural evolution, but you have a, a, a lot of ideas suggests that, well, yeah, there's going to be competition between those ideas. But because we're dealing with a small amount of time, uh, accidents of history, certain things blow, the wind blows one way, uh, or uh, somebody gets, you know, uh, uh, some, you know, Archduke gets murdered at some point and a different set of ideas have now become the ones that, that uh, are, um, that inherit the world. Those accidents of history, uh, we don't want to make the argument that, well, because of this particular fluke, now that set of ideas was adaptive the whole time. So if there's certain ideas which repeatedly we gravitate towards, that we can make a pretty good case for that being culturally adaptive. But otherwise, it's a tough argument to make. Mm -hmm. um, so so the, what you put forward of repetition, uh, that, that's a very, very good point, which for some dumb reason didn't occur in my mind. And that also reminds me that uh, evolutionary psychology deals with this problem a lot as well. Well, it's basically kind of the same problem, I guess just a bit broader than your field. Um, and I remember that they do have, uh, maybe not completely formalized, but I remember reading that they have a, some specific features that you're looking for when something is an adaptation. So is, is there something like that that you search for in your field? You mentioned repetition. Is there something else? That's interesting. I would like to see something like that. So a, a set of, say, four uh, criteria uh, that you need to fulfill. But I don't think it's as easy when you're dealing with cultural evolution as when you're dealing with genetic evolution. So the ideas there are, you know, um, and, and there are exceptions to all of these, which is why you're just building an argument based on these. But they're things like, uh, uh, continuity across species. This is in the genetic side, continuity across species, uh, uh, within species, um, uh, universality. Um, so if we talk about something like, uh, uh, I'm blanking on every single example now, but it, in, in cultural evolution, you wouldn't expect to have, of course, something like cross-species uh, variability. But the, the recurrent feature, I think, like we talked about, is, is important because you have a, a question of, um, over and over again, do you see a, a benefit to having, say, a moralistic afterlife? Is it the case that, that the cultures which do have a moralistic afterlife have a, a track record that's better over a long period of time and over numerous cultures than, say, cultures which, which don't have that? Um, is it the case that certain cultures which adopt what we would logically understand to be culturally maladaptive ideas end up... Uh, not succeeding. So the, the, the most obvious example of that is the Shakers and their opposition to sex, right? That's a, a pretty rough cultural, a pretty logically maladaptive cultural idea to uh, remove your main source of cultural propagation. Uh, and sure enough, you see that, well, very, very few cultures have had that idea. And the ones that did, we saw collapse pretty quickly. Right. Hmm. Okay. And so when you when you're trying to see uh, religious aspects that were uh, that are manifested through a cultural evolution lens, do you try to keep a very broad approach uh, and and just pick like really broad patterns, or do you think that even more minor things could be uh, actual adaptation? It's just that it's hard 
to parson them out. So for example, we can say, so as a whole, for example, we have Christianity, which is huge, right? And you can look at their set of beliefs and whatever, and you can say, okay, this is likely adaptive for that reason or this reason. Uh, but then you can look deeper. And so, for example, this set of beliefs of Christianity or this specific sect of Christianity. And so, but the more specific you go, uh, the harder it is to argue because the evidence is, is more scarce. But do you still believe that that is adaptive or that's because it's, more specific and more minor, it kind of ends up escaping the cultural evolution. Because something that's, something that's kind of shifted in my thought, for example, when I first encountered your work, uh, it was more or less when I first got into psychology, uh, even both studying on my own and both at university. Uh, and I was, uh, I was really into this whole cultural evolution thing. And, like, uh, and I was watching your video, I was kind of like, like, I was amazed, but at the same time, like I was already... I was already with you in a sense, you know, in terms of like worldview and whatnot. And I was really amazed. And now when I rewatched some of your work, uh, I still find everything fascinating. Uh, but I noticed that my worldview uh, has, has shifted a bit. And when I see everything through a cultural evolution lens, to me, it feels a bit uh, reductionist and kind of pushes like philosophy and, and theology a, a, a bit aside. And the reason why I mentioned like this specific more specific adaptations is, for example, if you see the evolution of Christianity, uh, there's clearly changes in the beliefs and how Christianity has behaved at the time. And I think you can make somewhat coherent uh, understanding of it from a theological and philosophical standpoint. But if you adapt a cultural evolution standpoint, I'm not sure how you do that exactly. I see. So this is, this is where I think I get to the crux of your first question then, which is, uh, how much is column A and how much is column B? Uh, and are they overdetermined? Uh, if you have a full explanation for, for B, do you need the explanation of A and vice versa? Um, so, I, look, I would say that if you're drilling down to specifics about Christianity, I think you're right. The argument becomes harder to, to logically suggest that those are maladaptive, right? Is it, is it that, that, you know, this particular saint is critical to the evolutionary success of, of Christianity? Probably not. What, what I think is uh, you can make a stronger case for is that the, the elements within Christianity, which you see among other successful religions, right? Because then what we're talking about is not something, it is a detail about Christianity, but it's not a unique detail about Christianity. It tends to be a, uh, uh, you know, if you fractionate the religious package into all the different elements, and you see certain elements seem to be repeating between different religions, well, that suggests that there's something about that that consistently emerges, and it consistently emerges for a reason. That reason likely could be uh, a cultural evolution. Now, of course, I'm on board with the idea that, well, things are going to evolve and change. Things are going to change within Christianity for reasons that are removed from cultural evolution. The, they they succeed because, you know, there could be inertia in this package of cultural ideas. They could succeed because they're hitching a ride on these other cultural, culturally adaptive ideas that are part of a religion. One of the things that I think religions are is these cultural packages, which just bring everything into them. Every aspect of life, they, they sort of serve as these attractor states and, and, and grow into these, these very large cultural packages. Um, which incorporate many culturally adaptive ideas, but also other things that they're bringing along with them. 
um, which could exist for philosophical reasons, for theological reasons, for intentional uh, uh, top-down uh, influences, uh, which could exist because of accidents of history. Now, certain times, and uh, this is a case that Joe Henrik makes persuasively, I think, is that, well, certain accidents of history that happened early in Christianity, certain splits that you saw, certain um, uh, cultural ideas that they adopted. And he talks a lot about, you know, bans on cousin marriage, uh, elements like this, uh, turned out to be uh, very adaptive. And you saw the sects that went one way become uh, uh, very successful and the sects that went another way, not successful on the basis of some of these small changes, right? Those changes could have been derived for theological or philosophical reasons. Uh, But ultimately, they were, they persisted and thrived for cultural evolutionary reasons. Is it that easy to parse out exactly what makes them successful? Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, I, I heard you mentioned the cousin marriage thing, and from, from memory, uh, Catholicism did the ban. And so, and Catholicism is, is the biggest, I, I believe, right? The, the biggest sect of Christianity, or am I wrong? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But, but, uh, Orthodox Christianity didn't have that, correct? And and so what you try, so you you could argue that partially what makes Catholicism um, successful, for example, the, it was that specific rule that 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 they introduced. But the, how exactly do you determine that? Because there's a million differences between Catholicism and Orthodox. So so how do you parse that out? So in in Henrik's paper, he looks at specifically the evidence about when when that split happened, when on the basis of what that split happened, uh, the how the the difference between how cultures uh, succeeded based on when they adopted Catholicism, uh, and so then it's like okay, so what is the idea within that package that seemed to lend itself to uh, being culturally adaptive? And then he builds the case that, well, out of the ideas that existed, the cousin marriage led to all these different things, which is this uh, splitting up of small bands, which allowed cooperation in larger bands. And, and again, then it's your detective story, right? You're building evidence for a case. And then the evidence gets evaluated. There's no hard, again, like in genetic evolution, unless you have the evidence of the genes themselves changing. So you have the example of the genes responsible for um, uh, oxygenation in the blood for the, these diving groups. Um, unless you have that, that that small genetic evidence, you're building a case for something being uh, evolutionarily adaptive. Never 100% sure. You just try to build a persuasive one. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that, that's that, that's pretty interesting, and that, that sounds very reasonable. Um, so I want we, we you kind of touched that a little bit. I would like to explore a bit more. So, for example, you mentioned about the kind of like the splits between a more traditionalist approach versus a more liberal progressive one. And so when that is applied to culture in terms of um, cultural evolution in terms of religion, so there's kind of more or less three views that you can have on it. So the one of it is uh, kind of like the, the Dawkins uh, view of it, which is like just a mind virus. We just got it. It just replicates itself and, and we should just get rid of it. And then there's a, another one, which I, I believe is yours and, and seems the most easy to get on board with, which is, well, this clearly was adaptive uh, in the past. Uh, it helped social cohesion and whatnot. 
Uh, but now we don't need that anymore. Either the ideas that it functions, now we can articulate them uh, more easily philosophical, philosophically, or because we have now secular institutions that kind of can play that role. But then there's another aspect to it, uh, or another view on it, which is not only were they adaptive in the past, they're very likely also adaptive now, even if you can't see it. Because what we thought, because if you go, because now we have a, like a whole very somewhat comprehensive like uh, uh, field of psychology of religion. And so you can argue what's adaptive or not. But if you went back 200 years, a lot of things that we now argue has adaptive, they could very easily then say, well, this is useless. We should just get rid of it. And so the arguments, I mean, this is kind of uh, Nietzsche's argument. And a lot of people have built on that, which is like, there's a lot more to this than, than we think. And so it's quite tricky to say, well, this is adaptive, but this isn't, and so we can replace this. So, how does the how, so how how does the fields or or you in particular, as as, you're in, as as an individual of what you think of these ideas, how do you view the adaptability over time of religion? Well, so one thing that we we note, and this is sorry, uh, um, one thing that we note is that um, if you look at the projections for religions versus say non-religious people. As a proportion of the population, the last projection I saw was expecting that non-religious people are going to shrink proportionally to religious people uh, because of demographic issues, right? So we see that it is the most religious countries uh, that are the most fertile and the most people within those countries that are the most fertile. So there's still elements of religion which are, which are highly adaptive from simply the demographic swamping uh, uh, criterion of, of what is culturally adaptive, right? So elements of religion that are encouraging people uh, to either directly or indirectly have children, uh, that's still, from a cultural adaptive perspective, that's still hitting it, right? Um, now, you have more economic power in places which have strong secular norms. Uh, that might not be a causal factor in the success of those uh, uh, society, rather to say that it might not be the, the, the lack of religion, which is uh, causing the success of those societies. It might be uh, some other third variable, some appreciation of, say, uh, a scientific values that have lent economic power to that group, or it could be an accident of history that's led economic power to that group, or you could have this process by which, well, the economic power leads to uh, a secularization, but that secularization doesn't actually end up helping the society at all. Um, the, the, what's going to happen in the next hundred years about whether religion starts to dwindle or the societies that uh, are religious uh, end up failing uh, versus the societies that aren't, I think is going to be a very interesting test of whether religion still has a culturally adaptive value, even if it doesn't have like a, a, a say a moral value or a value of, of a, a desirability value. Mm -hmm. So the, the question is, if your question is, well, is it something that's still adaptive or not? It remains to be seen. I think there's a good argument to, to, to suggest that it is still culturally adaptive mm -hmm. in terms of just making your culture bigger and more likely to survive. And thrive. Well, <laughs> well that, that, that certainly plays a role. Um, and that certainly matters. But my, my original uh, intent of it was not so much in the sense of like 
fertility rate or something like that, uh, which which is a reasonable approach from from your perspective. Uh, uh, but I, I was I, I was more I'm more concerned with things that Aaron has easily uh, measured, I think, and and things that I'm not sure if he can parse out that easily of just like waiting ten years and see which ones did better or not. Uh, I think that's a bit problematic. But more in terms of well, I guess you can make a case that you can you could still study it, but I'm not sure if you can. I'm not sure how easy it would be to actually see the, those factors uh, play out among the infinite noise. But like stuff like uh, social stability, social trust, um, mor- morality. For ex- for example, one of the problems that I think religion deals a lot is 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 obviously morality. But one of the problems. With, with that relates religion with morality is that it's not just morality when when everything is fine so like if you measure it it's not something that you pick up very easily it's more like when there's a genocide happening like what do you do like that's not something you measure in the lab very easily and so yeah. so that that's more what i'm concerned about you know like there's a lot of things that you can measure easily in the questionnaire for example and then just, just compare the religious versus non-religious countries yeah so that's I think that's a, that's a great example to bring up um, because there's now a lot of evidence which shows that religiosity increases when you have these shocks uh, to a system, whether it's war or natural disasters uh, or whatever, right? So when, when life gets harder, people turn to, towards religion, um, which, which makes a point about, you know, what kind of environment religion best fits, right? If we're talking about an adaptation environment fit or a cultural idea, uh, environment fit. If life gets easier, uh, the environment becomes maybe less conducive or makes religion with its benefits to certain things, but costs to other things, uh, a bad bargain, that cost benefit thing. But if life gets harder, uh, then, well, even if religion's bringing certain costs to the culture, the ideas become that much more, first of all, individually attractive. But as you suggest, also uh, uh, more effective for social cohesion, more effective for getting people to act in ways which are successful for the group rather than falling apart into some sort of um, nihilistic selfishness. Uh, then, well, then then religion becomes a good bargain, right? So what's going to be the environment of the future? Uh, you have the, the Pinker approach, uh, which is that Actually, I don't know if he's making predictions now. He's just kind of mapping how the world is now. Okay, so you have people who are predicting that the world is going to get better and easier. Um, don't know. Uh, it doesn't look like it right now, right? Um, and the, the thing which always stuck me as being a big concern is, well, if, if you believe what most, if you believe the alarm, alarming view, maybe the alarmist view of climate change, what we're expecting over the next hundred years is uh, not pretty. And if it's not pretty, maybe it's, it's fertile ground for religion. Um, so maybe we're, we're not going to see the secularization hypothesis, right? Which sees this trend of us as modernity increases, religiosity decreases. Maybe we don't see that continue. Uh, now a contrast between the demographic approach. And I think the, Actually, it's not even the approach that you're getting at. It's just the attractiveness of the ideas, right? So the way cultural ideas can spread, one is you can just have more people who believe in your thing 
Now you create more people who get indoctrinated into your thing than the people who are getting indoctrinated into something else. They create fewer people. There you have the example of the shakers, right? So shakerism doesn't get passed on very well because you're not creating the next generation of believers. Whereas some other group is, there's more of them than there becomes of you, you get demographically swamped. Another thing, another uh, a mechanism of, of cultural evolution is the, the prestige of the ideas. This group sees your culture doing very well and so wants to adopt the ideas that are associated with your culture. And so this happened over the 20th century a lot with a sort of an, or 19th and 20th century where certain non-Western cultures looked enviably at Western culture, saw how successful it was doing and, and then adopted a bunch of its cultural ideas. You saw this in Turkey, you saw this in Japan. Uh, that, that depends on uh, the success of uh, the cultures and their ideas as a as, as sort of a beacon of uh, a demonstration of the success of those ideas. If you tend to see the secular countries failing, uh, it, those ideas are not going to be, they're not going to have the prestige that's going to make them want to be adopted by the other cultures. Uh, I don't know whether you're going to see that, right? So if you're a guess 50 years from now, what are going to be the most successful and prestigious cultures? Um, uh, you know, maybe the United States is still kicking around in there. China's probably doing pretty well. Uh, China's not the most religious country, right? right. Uh, it's got another set of very, of, of ideas which lend itself to social cohesion. Those might be the prestigious ideas that get passed on either through uh, uh, a, a prestige bias and adoption of prestigious ideas or through just sort of a enforcement of those ideas uh, as more and more countries become just tributary states to, to China. Right. Um, I hope I live long enough just out of curiosity to see how this plays out. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I've, I've thought myself that a lot. Um, although I always feel bad. Like I wish I, I lived longer just to see what happens. And then, like, there's always the burning curiosity, but then also the guilt is like, that's, that's a, you're kind of insane like to have some have some sympathy for the world and not just your intellectual curiosity yeah <laughs> i can't, I can't well, help it well right so i hope i live long enough to see the the more hopeful future that okay that's better yeah <laughs> like you know, me as a secular liberal uh uh canadian person the future that i hope we go in is okay climate change is maybe not as bad as we painted out to be, or at least our, our ability to adapt to it is greater than we thought. Um, maybe that's maybe that happens. We get our act together on this virus. Uh, globalization doesn't come to a screeching halt, and countries become more insular and, and nationalistic. And uh, we don't have uh, uh, massive um, climate caused and uh, economic collapse caused uh, and resource shortage caused uh, uh, wars in the global south and mass immigration to the global north. All these things which you could see potentially on the horizon, those say don't happen. And in mm -hmm. fact, we, we, uh, the, the, the technological advancements that we're, we've been able to, to levy as a, as a civilization thus far continue. Uh, uh, and we're up to the task. We make society, we continue the society's uh, trajectory of getting richer, uh, getting more integrated. Uh, 
getting, you know, moving in a progressive direction. What we then likely see is life becomes easier. People still find things to be upset about, but life gets easier. Religion becomes less necessary uh, and potentially less adaptive. And we go into a more uh, secular, modern, wealthy, uh, uh, safe, uh, comfortable future. That, I guess, is the one that I'm hoping I live long enough to see. Let's, let's hope so. That doesn't sound too bad. In, in his, I think it's uh, in his Better Angels book, has this line where he says, I think this is when he's talking about not wanting to make predictions because he says he doesn't want to be the guy who's fallen out of the building. And as he passes the third floor window, he says, yeah, so far so good. Right. Um, okay, so I wanted to get a, in something else, but I'm not sure if I'll be able to articulate it very well. Just by any chance, are you familiar with John Frakey? Damn it. <laughs> okay. So, so he's from the University of Toronto. He, he was a, a colleague of, of Peterson. And he's a very oh, smart... Can you his last name again? Vareki, but I might be pronouncing it wrong. Vervik? Vervik, is that it? It, um, might, it might, might be something like that. He's, like, he's a cognitive scientist and he studies wisdom a lot. I, I am familiar with him. I'm not familiar with his work. Uh, okay. So, first of all, I think you should check out his work. Like, the, the guy is brilliant. And, uh, okay. and I think... And one of the things that makes me really... Um, positive and, and kind of certain that's to, to recommend it to people, even when I'm talking to very smart people and very educated people like you, is that um, he he connects so many things and he knows the literature so well on so many disciplines that I think no matter what you're an expert in, like you'll you'll just learn so much uh, from from some of the work he's doing. It's just it's just mind blowing. But uh, you should like he has uh, like maybe you don't have the time for it, but uh, in an ideal work, I'd recommend his lecture series called The Meaning Crisis. Mm-hmm. And he talks about a lot a lot about uh, religion, and so you'd definitely be interested in that. But the reason why I'm bringing him up, him up, uh, and and I'm not unfortunately I won't be able to do him justice because it's been a while since I've dived into his work, and it's it's these these things are complicated. But basically, is that Religion is a lot more than belief and it's very participatory in nature and it's very philosophical in nature, but that philosophy isn't necessarily something that you articulate, like it's, it's implicit. And the reason why I'm interested in this uh, in regard to your work is because beliefs is generally what you analyze in the psychology of religion, right? So like there's a, there's a set of, um, like it's very discursive, you know, it's, it's like something that you can, that you can pin down and write, you know? So for example, there is, there is a heaven and there is a hell. And then you can, for example, make correlations. You can do factor analysis of, with a bunch of things, whatever, right? But the problem is- One, uh, adjust, one adjustment I'll make to that is that in the psychology of religion and the evolutionary studies of religion, there's extensive discussion of the practice of religion, which are also things that can be written down or at least measured easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's- Can you give me an example? Oh, you know, like uh, um, uh, the work that Zigalatis has done on um, pain, painful rituals. Um, there's a lot of work on uh, uh, rituals in general, uh, everyday rituals, extreme rituals. Uh, those are not beliefs, uh, uh, but they are critical. And 
I think very important to uh, uh, the the social bonding function of religion. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not aware of the type of work. Um, but yeah, yeah that lots of this kind of stuff. Lots of this kind of stuff. So, but awesome. you're right. These are these are things which are easily measured. I don't think they're what you're getting at when when you're talking about the sort of implicit background mm-hmm. idea. Because because for example, uh, and part of the problem is that not only is it more than belief, a lot of times. Um, not sure how to express it exactly, but like it's mixed with belief. So like there's a belief associated with it, but there's not all there is to it. Like for example, uh, uh, John uses the term of, of like a, a participatory uh, knowing, for example. And this kind of goes back to like, that's not, I don't think that's his term. I think that's just general cognitive science of like, the, obviously there's several types of knowledge and there's a knowledge that seems particularly uh, connected with you experiences or anything. And that's not almost by definition, that's not something you can write it out. And so a lot of the times of, of you mentioned rituals, for example, uh, is that by doing a certain thing, you put yourself in a specific mindset. Like it, it's not, it's not a, a matter of a religion says this. It's, it's also about if you practice religion in this manner, your thinking shifts in a particular way. And it's not something you, you can write out. Like they're very complicated and, and, and not things that you can articulate very easily. So, so I, was, I was wondering uh, how does the fields uh, struggle with that? Although you cover that a little bit with, with the rituals of pain and stuff, which I find very interesting. Yeah, I mean, rituals, prayer, uh, various types of communion, all these things. Um, so so the, the ritual discussion is this idea that, okay, you have... Um, uh, this idea of group fusion, right? That you become fused with your group and where your identity dissolves and you find yourself more part of a group of people for whom you would, uh, you, uh, uh, you would die for. Um, that gets reinforced by these participatory rituals uh, that people engage in. Um, ways that you are constantly being put into situations where you empathize directly with the other people who are involved, right? So what Demetrius Sigalatis talks about is this idea of like, he, he measures things like heart rate, how heart rates get synchronized between the, um, uh, uh, say, firewalkers and the uh, audience, the religiously involved audience of people in these rituals. Um, and so what's happening there is he thinks some sort of, you know, Durkheimian, uh, uh, effervescent effect of these rituals, this, this, this uh, uh, overlap, psychological overlap between you and the other people in your religion. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not something that you would write down, but something that psychologists have, like Demetrius, have found are, are measurable. Right, right, interesting. Um, th- there is, at least based on the examples that you gave, um, to me, I still have the feeling that doesn't quite reach some of the depth that religion can offer but at the same time i can't articulate it so <laughs> so that doesn't help very much so i'll well, just I, have to ad- admit my defeat no no i don't i don't think you should I, I think i agree with you because i think maybe what we have you and i are having some sort of implicit shared knowledge here which we're not able to articulate but um when when demetrius talks about i think i think this is what he means when he's talking about something like synchronized heart rates, that's a proxy for something else, right? That's a proxy okay, for okay. 
some other sort of mindset that you're getting into, a, a social mindset, maybe in this case, a shared groupish mindset um, that is, is sort of the, 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 the active ingredient. Whereas what you're seeing is what he's trying to measure is, is some sort of external manifestation of that sort of mindset. I mean, how do you, how do you measure a mindset? I guess uh, you can measure people's reports or you can measure people's physiological responses, or you can measure, you know, some sort of other psychometric thing. Um, but what they're all trying to get at is maybe this underlying mindset that, that, that is what you're talking about. Right, right. Maybe, maybe. That's what <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, so something I wanted to touch is I, I, I once saw, um, like I, I interviewed, um, person called uh, Daniel Gregg, which is funny enough, a student of John Ravaki. And I wanted to cover this with him, but I didn't have the chance on, on, on my, on my podcast. So I'd like to ask you, because I think you, you might have some insight because this is your field even more than his. Um, so for example, you mentioned that when, when looking at what's potentially adaptive or not, you look at diff- you look at similarities across time and across cultures, which kind of hints that, that there's something, uh, that, that there's, a, there's a reason why that idea hits so well. And something that I saw uh, Daniel once mention, for example, is, so there, there's a difference. So Buddhism, for example, and Christianity uh, are, are very different uh, systems. And one of, one of the things that, that they covered is that Buddhism is very um, focused on the self, and, and, and self-transcendence and, and, and peace within your own narrow individualistic uh, world, let's say. And what he argues for is the reason why that happened is because uh, the society in which that belief system was born into is because it was very hierarchical. And so it, it's almost pointless. It was almost pointless to try to change anything in the world. And so that's why it focused so much on the individual. And he argued that uh, Christianity, for example, is very community-based uh, because uh, at least at the time where uh, Christianity started to evolve, the, the culture wasn't, we now consider the West indiv- individualistic, but a, a lot, I mean, you can argue that there's some theology in there, but it's, it's mostly a product of like modernism and the enlightenment and stuff like that. So like, like 2000 years ago, the West wasn't as individualistic as it is now. And so what he argues is that uh, that's why the community aspects uh, became more prevalent in Christianity than in Buddhism. And so what I'm curious about is if you make those types of uh, comparisons in, within the psychology of religion, if you make those types of comparisons uh, based on the cultural environments uh, that the religion was founded on. Because, for example, you mentioned that one way to look at adaptation is similarity. But, for example, in evolutionary psychology, uh, for example, a lot of people think that for evolutionary psychology to make a claim, it has to be universal. But a lot of times they make the opposite claim. It's yeah. like you can, make the, the, you, can, you can argue that a cognitive system is, is in place if there's variation based on a specific environment. And yeah. so, so how does that apply to, to religion? Right, great point. So, so you know, when I mentioned those those uh, uh, criteria that you use to determine uh, uh, adaptiveness, um, I mentioned that they're caveats, right? And so, certain things are things you wouldn't wouldn't expect to be universal, right? You'd expect that you would see systematic difference based on the different environmental pressures that you see in different places, and that's and so that's the same thing for uh, cultural evolution, right? These 
uh, religions evolved alongside other cultural institutions. They evolved uh, uh, in a particular cultural environment. I'm just speculating now, but you could see an alternative to uh, uh, Daniel's point, uh, which is that, well, the religions that were evolving in the East were evolving alongside other, and maybe actually this is his point, but they were evolving around, alongside other cultural ideas, which had a, uh, a community aspect, right? So if, you're, if you have a particular religion that's evolving alongside Confucianism, a lot of the functions that Christianity ultimately uh, uh, had to serve are already being served by a Confucian idea. And so mm-hmm. the religion itself doesn't need to serve that purpose. It can serve other purposes, right? So it evolves. Uh, it doesn't have the same niche that it's, it's trying to fill. Whereas in Christianity, if you didn't have that type of um, social orienting philosophy, uh, then Christianity had to, to fulfill that role and so evolved to fill that particular niche. Those societies would only thrive, they would only survive if you had something bringing that to the table. And since there wasn't anything else to do it, Christianity ended up doing it. Um, I've made this argument before, uh, still has resisted evidence, I'll put it that way, um, uh, maybe resisted testing, maybe resisted evidence, um, that some of the new manifestations of, of Christianity, some of the newer uh, sects of Christianity, um, are, they differ from the older sects because they've evolved in a different environment. They've evolved in an environment where you have a pretty well-established, centralized, secular, rules-based government uh, that has laws and contract enforcement and other secular norms which are enforced. And as a result, it's a different niche that it's filling. It doesn't have to fill that same uh, 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 requirement of Christianity to enforce all those rules that the older sects had to in the absence of those types of uh, effective uh, secular centralized governments that did their own uh, rule enforcement. Um, As a result, these new sects are off the hook for having to do that. And they can focus on different things. They can focus on things uh, which might be more adaptive when you're evolving in a cultural environment where there's many religions to choose from and many outgroups around you. So they might appeal for different reasons because they're filling a different environmental, cultural environmental niche. Right, right. That's a very good point. Um, it's very interesting. Um, so I'm not, like, I, I think this falls a little bit outside your field, but I think it affects it enough that you're familiar with it, I'm guessing. And so this is actually a bit blurry on my mind. So, so maybe you can help me clarify a bit, which is the relationship between uh, group evolution and cultural evolution. So first of all, I would like to know exactly if you know what's kind of the consensus on group evolution at the moment in terms of um, evolutionary biology, which then affects everything else. Um, so because like it just kind of... Um, we're talking, we're talking uh, group selection, multi-level selection? Yeah, exactly. So, so first of all, uh, what's the general consensus now? Because I'm, I'm not quite sure because like uh, uh, Darwin in the beginning thought it was possible and then kind of like in the mid 20th century, like with Dawkins popularized that it wasn't possible. But then like Wilson said it was again, it was kind of possible in the 90s and, and, and I'm, I, I can't figure out exactly what's... Huh? Both Wilson said that. E. Oh, and okay. David. Yeah. oh, I only know the first, okay. Um, 
David Sonlosan has been the biggest proponent of multi-level selection. He's been the biggest champion of it. Mm-hmm. And he's a smart guy. So the, the consensus is that people are still against it um, pretty strongly. Um, but, uh, and I don't know the details uh, well enough to, to weigh in 100% confidently. I will say this. David Wilson's a smart guy, and he's thought through this a lot. The fact that he disagrees with a lot of the consensus um, suggests to me that maybe there's there's something there. One of the things that in his early work, which I'm more familiar with than, than where he's taken things in the last, say, 10 years, um, that uh, frustrated me a little bit was the conflation of a cultural group selection with a genetic group selection argument, right? So clearly there's a cultural group selection aspect, uh, which is this idea that, well, cultural ideas can get people to do things which are against their individual interests, but do benefit the group, and then they get selected for at the group level. That does happen. Um, uh, And in fact, you need that sort of um, group level selection between different cultural ideas uh, in order to choose between what would be locally uh, local equilibria, right? So you could have um, so you can have a local equilibrium for uh, a society of, of all selfish people, and you can have a local equilibrium for a society of uh, altruists. Uh, you need a group selection selection mechanism to to make it such that the the group of altruists gets selected over the the group of selfish people, right? Because the, the individual, you're not going to have that at the individual level within the society. You're only going to have the, the uh, advantage seen at the group level. And so if you have a group selective uh, uh, mechanism, which you do for culture, it'll pick the altruists over the, uh, the selfish people. Um, I, I, I'm pretty confident that Davidson Wilson is taking it further than that and saying that there's a selection, the genetic selection aspect here. The reason I've been a little skeptical about that is, and and Wilson, I know he takes on this point directly. I'm not sure exactly how, which is why I don't want to comment too much on it. I want to leave it open a little bit. But um, the environment in which you tended to see humans evolve is not the kind of one which would lend itself to a genetic group selection situation where you have these hermetically, you, you have for a genetic group selection uh, mechanism to be effective, you have to have uh, cultural difference between groups and culture, sorry, genetic difference between groups and genetic similarity within groups, which means you have to have very little mixing, genetic mixing between those groups for the different genes to evolve for the different, for those uh, certain uh, groups genes to be selected over other groups genes, right? So imagine, let's take our selfish people and altruistic people again. So say that's not a cultural idea that's making certain people altruistic and certain people selfish within uh, two different groups. Say there's a gene uh, which allows one group to become altruistic and one group to become selfish. For those groups to get genetically differentiated, they'd have to be separated for a long time without any genetic mixing. What would happen with the genetic mixing is you would have that genetic difference disappear. Um, but you want those groups to be interacting enough so that one is chosen over the other. Uh, now, if we look at what the history of... So, so sorry, sorry. I, I, don't get, I don't quite get it. Why, did, why would they need to interact? Uh, because you have to have one selected over the other, right? You have to see one triumph over the other. 
But if uh, one, but if one, well, m maybe what my example that I'm thinking is too radical. But like, if one just gets uh, wiped out by whatever, then one still comes out at the top, right? Without any interaction. Or if the example is is less uh, drastic, uh, if one just managed to be that much successful on it, uh, but they don't interact at all for a long time, but then they just happen to interact. I don't know, thousand years later that small interaction might be enough that one group just gets outcompeted by the gr bigger group that has the 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 better genes or the better culture uh, cultural idea and that that very tiny window would not that be enough to knock that group out of the park even though there's no that that so, interaction so you need enough time for for the genetic change to occur right which of course moves much more slowly than the, then a, a cultural idea could differentiate those groups. Um, so you need, you, you, right, you need groups that are separated for a long time, long enough to genetically differentiate, and then you need some mechanism to choose one group over the other. Uh, at some point, you're right, it doesn't have to be in, in through direct competition. Um, uh, so say you had two populations that were removed for a long time, say you had some sort of uh, small-scale version of what happened with... Uh, uh, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, right? So you have one population, they get separated geographically, and then they evolve in different directions for several hundred thousands of years with no mixing until later uh, they re-encounter each other. They don't even have to re-encounter each other in this case. Um, there you would need, right, so that those groups would uh, genetically differentiate. The, the assumption is that what's happening is that there's a selection that allows group adaptive. I'm missing a piece of this. I'm missing a piece of this. Sorry, I'm getting, we're getting in the weeds here, but um, anyways, suffice it to say that there's grave challenges to the idea of genetic multi-level selection, which David Sloan Wilson is constantly batting back. Um, and there's a debate there. There are elements of that debate that I'm, I'm not completely familiar with, but I should be familiar with in time to teach my class on evolutionary psychology in the fall. All right. Yeah, but, but the, that, that was already, that was already super helpful. Motivated me to, to go dig into that stuff. <laughs> and um, because I know it's moved, moved since 10 years ago when, which is when I, I last did my deep dive into it. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, yeah. Uh, anyways, I, 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 yeah, I, yeah, I but, flag there. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But that, that, that already helped. Um, Something unrelated, but I wanted to make sure that we cover this because uh, th this is a bit more of a, a personal curiosity of mine, which is how does, how do cult, because like religion influences morality, but then there, there seems to be cases where the, the morality of that specific culture sometimes drifts more than others from that, from the, from the base religion, let's say. And, I, and I'm curious exactly how that works and, and the factors that play in, into it. Because, for example, so uh, countries in the Middle East that are Muslim, they, have, they often have values that are different than, than ours. So, and so we can call them, I don't know, uh, less, less Western or, or whatever. Like, for example, um, uh, human rights of, of women, for example, let's say. And it's quite clear that that those values come from from their religious beliefs. 
but it's not exactly a hundred percent match. Like because this is kind of like what the kind of what the right in terms of political spectrum tries to work. It's like, well, they they have these values. We think those values are shitty, and that's because of their shitty religion. And and there, there's a point there because there's obviously a very high correlation, not only a correlation between values and religion, but they actually um, they express those values based on their religion. So the, them, they themselves uh, admit that's where the values come from. But it's also not quite that simple, which is, which is kind of like the, the left argument, I guess, because there's there's countries that do have that religion, and the religion the religion has those values explicit, but they still have Western values somehow. Yeah. So how does that difference emerge? Yeah, well, uh, it, we, it goes back to the sort of environments in which religions are being mixed, and this idea of theological incorrectness, right? That you have. Uh, that what the the books and the sacred texts explicitly say is not necessarily what people follow uh, because there's other factors involved in, in pushing people towards their beliefs. Sometimes what you'll find is the theological idea doesn't fit well with our just general mental architecture. Um, so a good example of this is in Buddhism where there's an idea that this is the, the Jason Sloan uh, example, which is that in Buddhism, uh, you're not supposed to deify the Buddha, uh, but 85% of Buddhists do because it's something that comes natural to us to deify. So the sacred texts tell you to do, don't do this. We do it anyways, because that's the way our minds lead us. Um, in something like uh, Islam, in non, say, Middle Eastern countries, uh, what's happening is those ideas, which some of which are in the texts, uh, conflict with other cultural ideas that are surrounding them in the culture and people are pushed one way or the other. So, um, for example, Islam forbids both eating pig and drinking alcohol. Um, one of those is kind of more tempting to do than others, than the other. Um, uh, my, I'm going to out, Let's not say my family. Let's say my uh, many in my community, Muslim community here in, in Canada, they will not touch bacon or pork, but they drink. Well, okay, one of those uh, prohibitions is easier to follow than the other. Um, in my community of the, the community I grew up in, the Muslim community I grew up in in Canada, it's way way more liberal than the kinds of things you're referring to in, say, Saudi Arabia. Uh, same sacred texts, but a lot of things are ignored. There's a lot of selective uh, uh, mm. uh, ignoring of certain passages. You see that in Christianity as well, right? Right. Um, you see certain passages just fall out of favor. Well, they're not the ones we talk about on Sunday morning. We talk about other ones. Let's just forget about that one. Uh, that happens a lot because there's other cultural pressures. What you've seen in the West is some Enlightenment ideas coming in, and I've seen the religions that are in the West mixing with those Enlightenment ideas to form some sort of uh, a syncretic cultural package where you have a, a, a more Enlightenment version of Christianity or a liberal version of Christianity, a more liberal version of Islam. Now, they always have within them the seeds of those original texts, and one of the worries that critics of religion make is that, well, that's always there. It's always bubbling up. There's always the potential that you could return to what's explicitly written down because that's, that's never completely excised from the religion. But religions evolve. 
they evolve, they change. Uh, and they change in concert with other cultural ideas that they come in contact with. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that I have most difficult is, is for example, that, for example, in, in, the, in the sense of Christianity, I think it's, for me, it's easier to, to think about uh, because um, there's, all, like, there's, there's sort of like a parallel of between Christianity and between Enlightenment values, let's say, and then they're kind of growing at the same time. And, and it's a very, I mean, I'm sure it's not completely even, but like it seems more, uh, uh, more smooth. Uh, of, of a transition and for example in the sense of of your community for example that also makes a lot of sense because that religion has to compete with with values that are very entrenched uh in in the outer community but like it's a very are we talking what that religion is which that's that religion is islam in this case yeah islam in, in your community that's what i was referring to uh, and so th- that so what you argued seems very easy to me to see from that perspective, but it seems harder to view it in Middle Eastern countries, for example, where some of them have had very dogmatic religious views for hundreds of years, and they don't have that close border with values that are completely different, at least not that I know of. Maybe I'm just ignorant and there's cultural forces that I'm not aware of, but the context seems different. you know what I mean? Um, like it seems that it seems that, for example, if there is a Muslim country that is a lot more liberal than others, it seems that it would be very hard to predict that would be the case before it actually happened. When in the case of Canada, for example, I think most people could argue that it's like if if, well, if no, I, I'll make a prediction right now. I think that all these countries will become more liberal because they're now more coming into contact with other cultural ideas than they have hitherto. Right, so. Uh, uh, as we become more globalized, all those countries have been forced to reckon with more liberal ideas than, than theirs because they're on the much more conservative side uh, uh, of, I guess, the, the social liberal conservatism spectrum in the world. And because they're coming into contact with these ideas, those ideas are going to mix in with, with Islam there. Maybe uh, the conservative elements of the religion, religions tend to be conservative institutions, are going to slow the process by which those progressive ideas uh, 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 come into the religion uh, and come into the cultures, but it's already happening, right? The people there, especially the young people, are getting more liberal. And they're getting more liberal because they've exposed to those ideas. And sometimes they're not, uh, if sometimes they are giving up the religion, they find the, the inconsistency too much. But most of the time, that's not what's happening. Most of the time, they're maintaining their religious belief and incorporating these new cultural ideas that they're being exposed to. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that, that makes sense. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's certainly trending, uh, that way. Um, now, of course, what we talked about before is still true. If we see massive climate change and, uh, uh, the region gets inflamed in war and suffering and natural disasters, mm-hmm. That could have a countervailing force. It could make the conservative elements of the religion stronger. That, that could still happen. But my prediction is that there's, with globalization, we end up in a sort of a regression towards the mean um, with some, and, and, and this is, maybe I believe this just because I want to believe this, but with some push towards more liberal ideas because just general interaction between cultures tends to lead to that. Um, the, a mixing of more ideas tends to push you to uh, a more liberal perspective. Right. So 
So cultures sort of collapse in on themselves and move left a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, that, <laughs> yeah, I, I got it. I got it. Excuse me on that one, but let's let's put that speculation <laughs> prediction out there. Okay. Um, and and since we're kind of uh, covered a little bit of this, um, um, the 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 religion community aspect to it, I'm curious about how do religious uh, people view your fields and your work? Like, are, are they are they offended by it? Uh, do, do they find some value in it? Because uh, because obviously th- there's like an antagonism between science and religion, and in one sense, psychology of religion bridges a little bit, but at the same time, it kind of undermines religion at the same time. So how does that play out in your experience? Yeah, so first let's talk about the antagonism between science and religion. In general, um, that the, the newest research I've seen on that tends to see that as, as kind of a Western thing, and, and in particular kind of an American thing. Uh, you see the most science-religion antagonism in the United States, and as you get further from the United States, you see less and less of it, uh, which I think is interesting. Um, uh, with regards to the science of religion in particular, uh, my assumption would be that people, that religious people wouldn't like it um, because as you suggest, it does sort of undermine some of the truth claims. When you take a naturalistic perspective of religion, um, and this is sort of where we started our conversation, the naturalistic perspective of religion is overdetermined with the supernaturalistic origin of religion. Uh, both can't be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're giving one explanation for why religions emerge, which is not the supernaturalistic one. So it does come into conflict with people's beliefs. So that's my assumption would be a lot of people wouldn't like it. And I, I suspect that a lot of people wouldn't like it, but surprisingly, and maybe this is just because these are the people who are willing and comfortable to reach out to me. I get a lot of emails from religious people who very much enjoy that perspective. Uh, now that's, Potentially, that's the more open-minded slice of, of the group, the, the ones that are able to, um, uh, to hold an intellectual view of religion at the same time as they have their belief in religion. Um, uh, but these are people who are not antagonized by the science of religion. They find it curious. They're, they, they, they are interested in their religion. They're interested in hearing different perspectives on it, even if they might be a little threatening. And that, I think, is an impressive thing. Mm-hmm. That's very that, that that's very good to hear. Um, I, I was actually expecting uh, your experience to be uh, less less friendly, so, so I'm glad Me to hear too. it. Me too. I mean, I, I have you know I've gotten negative reactions too, but I've gotten way more positive reactions than negative uh-huh. reactions. And it's not it's it, it's a different context, but it, it, it's there has a very slight uh, commonality, which is, for example, when I was first getting into these topics uh, around the time where I, where I first. Uh, watched um, your interview. Uh, I was coming from a background of of like very new atheist like type. Uh, I don't know worldview, I guess. And that actually learning about psychology of religion actually made me more uh, empathetic towards it and more more interested uh, towards it. And and I, I certainly don't think there's a, a big antagonism between science and religion. And I think that plays a role of what I was trying to say earlier about this, this implicit um, uh, role of religion, because I think that's exactly what kind of has been lost in the West and even more in the US, because what you see in the US and, and the West in general is exactly this very, that has to be articulate. It's about like, it's like, what do you believe exactly? Do you believe in heaven? Where, where's heaven? Like, tell me the coordinates or something. 
And uh, I think we got very obsessed uh, about this in the West. And I think that's, bec- that, I think that's why there's such a, an antagonism between yeah. science and religion. And in the West, like, I think people recognize that religion is, is not so much about specific beliefs and that there's, there's stuff to it that's more from a existential and phenomenological level that doesn't, it's not a world of facts per se. So, so the, the two can, can mesh more easily. That's an interesting point, right? So there could be, so one of the reasons why you see this in particular antagonism between science and religion in, in, in the United States say, uh, could be because you're right, both end up competing for this epistemological sphere. Um, uh, rather than being able to share different spheres of life, right? So uh, I guess we're going to use the non-overlapping magisteria. In, in, the, in the United States, they're competing for the same sort of magisteria. And for some reason, everything ends up getting polarized in the U.S. So if you start defining yourself as a religious person, now you're defining yourself against a, 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 whatever the non-religious people are, which tend to be these liberal, fact-based, tough-minded, science-oriented people. And if you're defining yourself as one of these science people, now you're defining yourself in opposition to these, uh, uh, you know, loony, uh, superstitious, uh, conservative religious people. And you find people are driven to their corners by that process of polarization, which might not be happening in, in other places because you don't have that, you're not defining yourself against people in this, uh, uh, this uh, in competition for the single sphere of society in the way that is happening in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Uh, n- I wouldn't say not so much the, the aspect of identity that you mentioned, but in this, in this aspect of, of, of the conflict. Uh, have you happened to read, or at least be vaguely familiar with, uh, I, I forgot his name, but he wrote a very famous book called The... Uh, the master and his emissary. Have you heard of it? I I have heard of it. I'm not sure why I've heard about it. Heard of it. <sighs> let me let me just grab his um, his name very quickly. Uh, but he, but he argues. Uh, uh, Ian McGill Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It, it, that that's such a good book. And in the second part of the book, he argues a lot of this like uh, decline in the West, precisely of this. Um, I would even venture to say misinterpretation of what religion is about. And I think, I think like I, I've been thinking about this, this types of problems for a long time and he has, he, he kind of articulated the problem the most clearly I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's very good. Um, so yeah, I just want to add that in. So we've been at this for a long time. It's, it's already the second day that I'm bothering you. So I don't want to take too much of your time. But there's a, there's a couple things that I would like to ask. Uh, first of all, um, I would like to ask you, what's the most interesting research that you've came across this year related to your field? Uh, do you mean related to religion or do you mean related to my field in general? Uh, I would say anything related to uh, moral or social psychology. I, I, don't, I know you have a lot of work into uh, like the, the car stuff and stuff like that, which I would like to get into, but you don't have time. So j- yeah. just to get more consistency with the podcast, let, let's say somewhat related to either morality or, or religion. There was a great um, article, I guess this is pushing about a year ago now, 
um, in Behavioral Brain Sciences uh, by Michael Bang Peterson and um, Pascal Boyer on folk economics, the evolution uh, of folk economics. Um, and there they make this argument that there's an intuitive way that we understand how economics works and it's rooted in uh, evolved intuitions in the same way that there's a folk, uh, we have a folk understanding of how physics works and a folk understanding of biology works. We come with this intuitive way that we think biology works and physics works. We have this intuitive way that we think economics works and it conflicts with the way that economics actually works. And it's one of the reasons why economics seems like such an account. Many fundamentals of economics seem so counterintuitive to us and why we struggle with understanding the global economic system. So for, for instance, they talk about certain things like we have a, an intuitive understanding of zero sumness that if I trade something to you and I get something from, from back from you, uh, there wasn't value that was created because I got one thing, you got the other thing and nothing more is, is produced. If you win something, that means I lose something. It can't, the idea of win-win situations where both people are better off because of trade is sort of a counterintuitive idea uh, given our, our existing default psychology. Um, uh, it talks about other aspects about why we don't like uh, new immigrants into a society because we uh, have a, um, they, they're demanding the fruits of cooperation without having uh, a signaled their willingness to uh, 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 invest in cooperation um, goes through a, a series of these, and it was it, it's just a, a very interesting, brilliant paper, um, uh, which which explains a lot of the popular angst with uh, uh, the way people perceive economics. So that mm. was a really good, really good paper. There was another paper. Uh, this is also in the sort of economic sphere which I, I keep bringing up with my grad students because I find it such an interesting, it's, it's more, it's, it's moving away from religion. It's, it's in the inequality aspect, but it still has to do with morality. Um, on, on the first, on a superficial level, it seems like, well, why are people studying that? Why is that important? But then you think a little deeper about it. It's really interesting. So, so basically here's what it is. Here's the finding. Uh, this, this was in proceedings of national Academy of sciences, um, showed that, uh, women post a greater proportion of uh, uh, what they call sexy selfies. So titillating pictures of, of themselves wearing, you know, less clothing. Uh, they post that more in places with higher economic inequality, but there's no difference based on gender inequality. So if you look at, I think they looked at the county level or the state level or the metro area level, can't remember exactly, but there's no relation between the proportion of, of pictures which are sexy selfies and how much gender inequality there is in, in, in that area. Um, but there is a strong relationship between how much economic inequality there is and, and the, the proportion of sexy selfies that's, that are posted. And so again, like at first blush, why, who, who came up with that idea? Why would you look at that? Why is it important? Here's why it's interesting. So one of the things that inequality does is by stretching out the uh, uh, socioeconomic spectrum, it makes it such that the people at the top, the more inequality there is, the more beneficial it is to be at the top. Uh, the more uh, fruits uh, of being at the top you get. So if you're in a society where 
um, say the person who's in the top, uh, uh, this is like mid-century society in, in the United States. It's talked a lot about when uh, incomes were compressed, the most expensive car was twice as much as the average car. Now we're in a society where like the most expensive car is like 40 times more expensive than, than the average car. The people who are on the top of uh, uh, the socioeconomic ladder have way more money than the people who are in the middle. We're in a more compressed society, in a more equal society. The people who are at the top, the people who are in the top five or 10%, they have, quite, they have a good deal more, but it's not like as crazy as it is now. So the more inequality gets stretched out, the more uh, people at the top, uh, you, you gain more from being at the top. So what's going on with the sexy selfies? Well, if one of the reasons that women are trying to attract mates is because they're trying to attract the most desirable mate, um, the benefits of getting a, a, a man who is very wealthy are greater. The, sorry, the benefits of getting a man in the top 5%, say, of the socioeconomic ladder uh, is uh, uh, more fruitful in a place with higher inequality. So there's more competition for the men at the top. And the way that they, one way that, that women can compete is by posting these pictures. And so what's happening is like, in, and, and you can extrapolate this beyond just, you know, uh, uh, physical attractiveness and, and revealing photos. It talks about this, this drive to be at the top that's a consequence of in, increasing inequality. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, and then it's funny because you kind of alluded this right before you laid out the study. Uh, but uh, but I, I still thought about it, which is like, on, on one hand, it just seems just stupidly obvious from the evolutionary psychology. But despite that, and despite me being familiar with the field when he first described what the study was, I was like, what the hell? What's, uh, right. what's that about? Like, once you reflect on it, it's like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. That's a really interesting theory. But just on the surface level, it's like, that's a weird finding. It's a wacky. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So something else that I would like to ask you, although this might be a bit controversial. So if you don't want this public, just let me know and I'll cut it out. And I noticed that you had a paper of, uh, I'll, I can't remember the title, so I have to look it up. Uh, Declines in religiosity predicts increases in violent crime, but not among countries with relatively high IQ. And it was retracted. Um, and so you got a bunch of controversy. And so I, I know a little bit about it, but I, I don't know exactly what the whole drama was. So do you want to explore that a bit? Yeah. So uh, I haven't talked about this publicly. Uh, so let's, let's, try it now and we'll see how the conversation goes and then maybe I can retroactively say whether I think okay. cut it or not. Um, so that was a, that was a very interesting um, and challenging process. Um, so the idea of the paper was that, and the reason I was, so, so the idea of the paper came from uh, the lead author um, and she's a, a longtime collaborator uh, and friend, and she'd approached me with this idea for which she'd already uh, run some analyses for, uh, and um, uh, and pitched me on the idea, which I found interesting. The idea was this: that uh, the, the data purported to show to show this that uh, declines in religion are associated with increases in the homicide rate, but only in countries where the average IQ is uh, low. Uh, compared to countries where the average IQ is high. So if you do a median split, um, or if you, if you run the interaction, uh, you see that this 
this um, religion goes down, a homicide goes up, you, you tend to only see that in the relatively lower mean IQ countries uh, compared to, and you don't see it in the, in the relatively high IQ countries. Now, the reason why this, I found this really interesting is because I've been very curious about this idea of uh, where secularism works and where religion tends to, where religion offers its benefits and where secularism uh, can, uh, secular institutions can also offer those benefits uh, without the need for religion. That I find has been a longstanding, really interesting question. This offered one um, explanation, which is that, well, there might be something about the uh, environment, uh, the social environment of people with different cognitive abilities. So something about uh, religion might be particularly useful uh, for people with lower cognitive ability uh, than, um, and, and something about the secular institutions, whatever they might add to morality, uh, might work better for people with higher cognitive ability. Um, so that was the general idea. Uh, it's controversial for a couple of reasons. First, we don't like talking about differences in cognitive ability. And we certainly don't like talking about country level differences in cognitive ability um, because it has, it smacks of a, a, a very racist history of cognitive uh, measurement, cognitive ability measurement. Um, uh, which is not to say that the hypothesis is wrong, uh, but it is to say that it's a, it's a controversial idea. I think there's still something to the possibility that, well, religion is different cultural institutions, uh, different even philosophical ideas are going to hit differently. They're going to be absorbed differently by people who differ in the way that they think, uh, including on something like uh, IQ. Um, the problem with the paper was this, uh, the measures that we used, uh, were not, not good. Um, and, uh, this was something that we, we were aware that there was going to be controversy to the paper. So we spent a long time trying to get the analyses right. But what we didn't question was whether the data that we put into those analyses itself had integrity. And it turns out that they didn't on, on two dimensions. So the religion data, I think were pretty good. Uh, the religion data always have, because they're based on self-report, they always have their own um, uh, frailties. Uh, but the homicide data that we used uh, was problematic because the, uh, a lot of the data which estimated homicide rates in uh, uh, lower income countries were not based on very tight statistics. They were not based on actual measures of homicide rates. They were imputed based on other things which correlate with, which reliably correlate with homicide rates. And so they made assumptions about what the homicide rate was, was based on like six other variables, which in the rich countries tend to reliably correlate with, with homicide rates. So you can estimate within some sort of confidence interval that based on the regression equation that we saw uh, with these six things predicting homicide rates, and they were things like um, proportion of males, uh, uh, I think literacy rates, uh, uh, I can't remember what they were. They, they were things which were relevant. Um, and, and the assumption is that, well, because these things correlate with homicide rates in rich countries, they're going to correlate with homicide rates in uh, poorer countries. And so we can, we can estimate what the, what the homicide rate would be in this, in this country, even though we don't have the actual data. Um, 
for a bunch of reasons that becomes very problematic when you put it into the type of analysis we were doing. The other big problem was the cross-national IQ data. Uh, I mentioned that there's this big racist history uh, to IQ measurement, especially group differences in IQ measurement. And it turns out that these data have baked within them a lot of that racism, right? So the, uh, the data that we got, and we got multiple different data sets because we were trying to say, well, if there's weaknesses in one data set, maybe they wouldn't be weaknesses in another data set. turns out they're all based on uh, the work of this one guy, Richard Lynn. Um, and upon the controversy that erupted over the paper, it forced me to look deeper into those data uh, in a way that I didn't uh, when we were initially putting the paper together, simply because you know, I was involved in a different sort of aspect of the paper, right? I was involved in the religion aspect of the paper. I wasn't questioning, and I probably should have, uh, the integrity of the IQ data. But once I dug into the IQ data, it was absurdly bad. Um, they would make assumptions uh, about what the IQ was of an entire country based on some analysis they did of 200 public school students in 1967. And they would say, okay, because you know, these 200 students who did this task that has actually now been discredited as a measure of cognitive uh, ability, or at least of IQ. Well, they scored 87 back in 1968. Okay, well now the, the, the IQ of Guatemala is 87 uh, today for the whole country. Um, you know, once you dig into the data, you just find not all instances are like that. I mean, I think the data for France are probably pretty good, uh, but the data for a lot of these other countries, Guatemala and Algeria and Egypt and all these places, they're based on very few samples, non-representative with questionable methods. And, and the question is, well, why was that considered acceptable? It's not acceptable. Why was it considered acceptable? Part of the reason it might have been considered acceptable, part of the reason why the researchers may have uh, been willing to go along with that instead of questioning their data may have something to do with some of the preconceptions that they brought to the data. Um, and those might not be the most noble preconceptions. So once I realized that the, uh, you know, this idea of garbage in, garbage out, I didn't realize that we were putting garbage in, but once I did realize we put garbage in, then any results that we had, regardless of whether the theory itself was right or not, the results that we had did not speak to it. They were, they, the data were not good enough for uh, the analysis to be meaningful. And so at that point, I knew we had to retract the, the paper, which is what we did. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's very reasonable. Um, about the, the, the IQ issue, like maybe maybe this sounds very bad and I'll regret it, but I have some sympathy towards I would say even more extreme right type people that kind of want to insist on this uh, IQ uh, differences in race. I'm kind of sympathetic to it because they they don't want they don't want push away the question just because it's politically incorrect, and and I don't think I don't think it's impossible that there are differences. Like uh, I have, I have that mindset. Like if there's differences, there's differences, and it doesn't seem that unreasonable of a proposition. But at the same time, the data that those types of people use to justify that is just bad. Like it's like yeah. it's very similar to what you said. Like it's just yeah. it's just really bad. And so, not only okay, yeah, sorry, not not only of 
uh, how how it was collected, which is one one of the few examples that you mentioned. But like, even if it was collected probably uh, properly, like there's a lot of co-variables. For example, I think uh, health is a huge issue. Like health and intelligence are it's it's really hard to divorce the two. And a lot of people that really insist on this race IQ thing, they just they push it to the side. Like they don't they don't really battle with it properly. Um, so you were trying to say something, sorry? Well, yeah, so let's, let's differentiate the race and IQ issue from the country level IQ difference because they're not the same thing. Right. Um, the, there's an assumption that people understandably jump to when they hear the term IQ, they start thinking about race because those things have been so entwined in their history um, such that when you hear anything about IQ, especially when you hear anything about group differences in IQ, uh, you're jumping to the to to the thought that what we're talking about are race differences in IQ, and the reason the race difference in IQ thing is so problematic is well for a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is that people then jump from there to the assumption that we're talking about genetic race differences in IQ, right? Um, uh, and then they jump to the conclusion that there's immutable genetic race differences in IQ. Um, these are a lot of assumptions people make because it's a, it's a, it's a very controversial and uncomfortable idea, but we can put some of that aside because what we were looking at were country level differences in IQ, which, which aren't necessarily race differences in IQ, and they're certainly not genetic differences in IQ. Mm -hmm. um, we should also, and I'll put this in parentheses right now because it, it, it needs mentioning though it's getting us off on a tangent, which is that what are we talking about when we talk about IQ? Um, James Flynn, who's you know one of the leading IQ researchers, he makes this point that well, we're, the reason that we've seen this increase in IQ over the 20th century is because it's a particular type of thinking. It's a particular type of analytical Western thinking, uh, which has increased in the West and other places over the 20th century uh, as we become a more analytical type of thinker um, here. Which means that it might—it's—it's it's only tapping into a, a particular type of intelligence. It turns out to be a type of intelligence which is highly predictive of a bunch of desirable things, but it is only a, a, a type of intelligence. Um, the country-level differences that we're seeing—the people don't like the idea that they could exist. Uh, however, people would readily admit that a lot of the things that we know correlate with and even cause IQ differences or cognitive ability, cognitive development differences, we would readily admit that those vary between countries. So you mentioned health is a great one. Nutrition is another great one. Wealth is another great one. All these things we know have a causal impact on cognitive development. One big one that we, we uh, that's very specific is iodine deficiencies, right? So it used to be everybody was iodine deficient. And then we realized, well, that causes all sorts of problems, one of which is it reduces uh, your IQ level by somewhere between three and 20 points, which is enormous, right? And so what did we start doing? In the 30s, we started iodizing our salt. And that led to a jump in IQ because now we reduced uh, iodine deficiencies. It led people to uh, have better cognitive development and it increased IQs. But we didn't do that evenly across all the countries. We started in like Canada and the U.S. and we saw the jump that it had there. Uh, up until uh, the 90s, there was still iodine deficiencies in a lot of countries. There still are a few. Uh, we shrunk it considerably because we recognized that, well, it's very important to make sure we iodize 
uh, that we, we stamp out iodine deficiencies so that people can re reach their cognitive potential. The people who are doing that sort of public health outreach, they don't have the luxury of being able to pull the wool over their eyes about the fact that there's going to be differences between cognitive ability between countries because they're out there trying to solve the issue. Um, so they have to admit that, well, there's these connections between these things. And if we actually want to get people to reach their uh, intellectual potential, their brain development potential, we have to go deal with it. There are things which cause it and those things aren't evenly distributed between countries. So I think that there's a bit of disingenuity or false consciousness, or at least just dis uh, uh, risks to the discomfort of uh, assuming that all countries magically have the exact same level of cognitive development, despite differences on all these other um, uh, things that we know are environmental causes of, of differences in intellectual development. Uh, so, um, I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, th th those, those are great points. And I'm, I'm glad that, that you further uh, clarified that. I'm also curious about the, the other, the other data problem about the, um, the homicide rate. Why exactly weren't you able to get it? Did they just not track it in these countries? How, how's that possible? That's possible, right? So <laughs> uh, when you look at cross-cultural comparisons of crime rates, you already have a lot of problems because people define crime differently. So sexual assault, for instance, is defined very differently in India than it is in Thailand, than it is in Sweden, than it is in Saudi Arabia, than it is in Canada, right? So you, it's going to be difficult to compare, say, sexual assault rates. Homicide rates are used as sort of the gold standard of cross-cultural crime comparisons because they tend to be defined the same way everywhere, and they tend to be a serious enough crime that they're investigated uh, everywhere. However, certain places um, don't have the centralized resources uh, and even the decentralized resources to be able to track their homicide rates as well as other places. And so they don't have the type of tight uh, data based on actual homicides that are occurring uh, that we have, say, in Slovenia or Canada. Um, as a result, uh, we still want to make these comparisons, and so people use uh, this data imputation techniques, uh, which for a lot of, they have a lot of use. They're, they're useful for uh, uh, a lot of questions that you might ask. It turns out that they weren't useful for the types of questions we were asking. Uh, for one, because, well, so the reason I remembered that one of the factors that uh, 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 that they use to impute the data are the proportion of males is because, or the proportion of young men, it was the proportion of young men in particular. Well, young men are the most dangerous people in the world, right? Um, the uh, young men are also the least religious people in the world. So now you've confounded uh, your indirect measure of homicide with your measure of religiosity. Uh, that's, that's a problem for if, if what you're doing with the data are trying to see how these variables interact. Um, and so while the imputation might be useful for certain questions, it wasn't, it, it wasn't useful for our question. Got it. That, that's, that makes sense. We, sh we should end it here. Uh, like we covered a lot uh, and it was, right. it was super fun. Like uh, there was a, um, there was a lot of topics that, that I wanted um, and both a further 
clarification and articulation of them, uh, which you provided, uh, and also just completely new things that I didn't think about. Um, so I found yeah, that I very helpful. I enjoyed it a lot too, and you've given me a couple books uh, to read that I'm looking forward to checking out. So I learned a lot here too. Awesome. Um, I did have uh, a lot more I wanted to get into. For example, um, like your, your your work on free will, I find it fascinating. Uh, and first, we just didn't have the time. Uh, and also uh, your work on autonomous cars. Uh, so maybe some other time, not anytime soon, because I already bothered you enough. But if you want to come here again and we discuss those topics, uh, yep, that would be amazing. Um, All right. Okay, so thank you very much. Have a good week. Thanks, Jared. Bye-bye. Bye.